Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. If you turn with me to John chapter 8, I will pray. Father, again, we thank you so much to to give thanks for. For the moment, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit. Thank you the ministry of your spirit is such that he's the great teacher. And I ask that you would, by your spirit, teach us, teach me. And Father, would you give us hearts that would be open? Father, hearts that, that would be able to understand and grasp that which you communicate and then would you also give us hearts that are obedient Lord that will be responsive to your word hearts that are circumcised and sensitive to the touch of your of your spirit Um, would you please help us in that regard Father we pray and um, also Lord would you help us to stay awake Amen Amen so we're in John chapter 8 okay our title for today's message is Caught in the act of sin. Caught in the act of sin. And I'm going to read from verse 1 right through to verse 11. <clears throat> Reading from the ESV. They, they went out. They went each to his own house. Verse 53, right? Verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, prior to this in chapter 7, was a celebration of a, a major Jewish feast. They called it booths or tabernacles. And this took place over the course of a, of a few days. And here in Jerusalem are hundreds, if not thousands, of worshippers. And verse 14 of chapter 7, we see that the Lord Jesus had been teaching in the temple. At one point, some of the people are astounded at the things that he said. They're like, wow. Others, on the other hand, mocked him and accused him of being demon-possessed. We see that in verse 20. Some of the religious authorities, that is the the Pharisees, 
they were in the midst of this seeking to arrest Jesus. We see that in verse 32. Then on the very last day of the feast, there's this big evident disagreement. Some were convinced that Jesus was the promised prophet to come, that he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, he was the king of Israel who would bring peace and justice. But the other group, they rejected Jesus and any claim of him apart from that he was a deceiver, let alone a a prophet who was come from God. And at the end of chapter seven, verse 53 says that they all went home after that for the day. But chapter eight, verse one says that Jesus went where? He went to the Mount of Olives. Presumably he went there to pray, um, possibly there all night, not sure. But this wouldn't have been unusual for Jesus, right? And then look at verse 2. It says, early in the morning, he came again. So possibly from the Mount of Olives. He came again back to the temple, and all the people came to him. Now you think, Lord, why would you go back there? They gave you such a hard time. Well, presumably, he's speaking to the people who had enjoyed listening to him, possibly the day before. And he sat down, and he taught them. But... These weren't the only ones who turned up on this particular morning to interact with Jesus. Here's the other batch. That is the haters, right? Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees were there. And they're not alone, are they? Who do they have with them? He says they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, for the sake of clarity, adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not their spouse, right? It's a man sexing up a woman that's not his wife. Adultery. And it says, and placing her, this woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst or in the middle or in the center where everyone could see. Verse four, they said to him, Jesus, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now this is serious stuff, right? Caught in the act of adultery. This woman hasn't just been involved in an adulterous relationship um, sometime in the past. It says they caught her in the act. Now you must have heard the popular song by Shaggy, right? It wasn't me. Honey came in and they caught me red-handed, creeping with the girl next door. Picture this, we were both found naked, getting busy on the bathroom floor. You know, it's how I clean that up. I know it's still pretty explicit, right? It's all right. If your children are, I don't know, under 18, you can take opportunity to explain the lyrics to that song when you get home. I think one of the things that we've been learning over the years, I remember when I first became a Christian, it was like I legislated my kids, my wife, anybody in my house listened to any secular music, none whatsoever. I weeded it out like leaven. It weren't going to happen. And um, I mean, I was an ex-DJ, right? So I loved music so desperately when I was in the world. So when I got saved, that was it. And um, I think over the years, you know I'm saying, I've softened somewhat and I think become wiser And rather than legislate, you mustn't listen to that. I think it's helpful that, you know they're going to listen to it anyway, right? It's probably helpful that we teach them how to listen to to music, you know what I'm saying, and how to watch films and so on. And 
So take that as an opportunity to explain to your kids, you know what I'm saying, the lyrics to that song and any song that they listen to, sit down and listen to the, to, to, to the music with them rather than telling them to switch that off or just because it's got a bit of beeline or, you know what I'm saying, you might be kind of particularly personally aggrieved at listening to that music, you know what I mean? But I think wisdom says, let's help them to learn how to listen. And <clears throat> this song, it's a horrible song. I can't lie, I can't remember where we were talking about this. Was it community group? Absolutely love the beat. I can't even front. But the lyrics, they're so poisonous. You know what I mean? And in the song, my man is trying to deny that it was him, right? Even though <laughs> the girl or his wife or his wifey comes in and catches him red-handed, he's still there trying to deny it, chatting about it wasn't me. And seemingly, this is the same situation that this woman has found herself in in verse 4. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery, and it's peak for her, right? And these sex inspectors, they continue in verse 5, and they say, now in the law, remember she's in the middle, and they're exposing her and highlighting who she is and what she's done. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? Jesus. So they're properly putting it on Jesus, right? Look at verse 6. This they said to do what? To test him. Really, this has nothing to do with this woman. She's just a pawn in their game. See, really their aim is to trap Jesus. And Jesus seems to be on the horns of a dilemma, right? If he says, don't stone her, then he would be contradicting the law of Moses, not good. If he says, stone her, then he could be found guilty of breaking Roman law, which could equally get him in a different kind of trouble, right? Say one thing, and you're breaking the spiritual law of, law of God. Say the other thing, and you're breaking the judicial law of the land. It seems as if, at last, they've been able to trap Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Hardly. He says that he, he gets down on the floor. He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. No verbal response at this point. Could it be that Jesus is doodling because he doesn't know what to say? It seems like maybe they have got Jesus. Maybe they've caught him out. And it could seem like that. But he was writing something, it says. I wonder if his listeners, or at least those who were close by, were looking at what he was writing. We're not sure. Verse 7. And as they continue to ask him, because obviously he's not responding, right? He's there doodling in, in the dirt. They continued to ask him, questioning, challenging, prodding and testing him. And like a boxer, Jesus seems to be on the ropes, right? Actually, on the canvas, because he's on the floor, right? But then he gets up off the ground and literally throws a knockout punch. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. These men have no idea as to who they've actually stepped into the ring with. And they had come for a fight, right? 
Yet the tables have now turned and they are on the ropes. And it's like, I remember, you know, I actually shared this message in Brixton Prison um, last Sunday and I made reference to the Khan fight. I don't know if you lot saw that a couple of weeks ago. I didn't see it. I just saw the, the highlights on Sky News and everyone is expecting Khan to win and he didn't. And at least in terms of where they were at, instead of Jesus being on the ropes, they are now on the ropes. Verse 8, and once more, after this knockout punch has got them spinning, Jesus bends down and begins to write on the ground again. Now, there's been a lot of speculation around what Jesus was actually writing. You know, some, some have suggested that possibly he sat down and he began to write maybe the 10th commandment. You know, anybody know the 10th commandment? Keep saying it, man. Thank you, Marky. I'm going to take you a look back to Children's Church. 10th commandment is that you must not covet. And as he's writing that, could possibly one of them standing there looking at that thinking, bro, you know what? I actually covet my neighbor's wife. Talk about this woman here that's caught in an act of adultery. Maybe he went down through the rest of the commandments. Maybe he was writing them all out. The ninth commandment, you mustn't lie. Standing up there with a, with a guilty conscience. Because those, of, those individuals that, that were able to actually carry out this stoning had to be guiltless of the crime that they were stoning the individual for. You know what I'm saying? Maybe they were standing there and Jesus is writing them out. So you've got one that's covering in his heart. Jesus already says that if you cover it in your heart, you're just as guilty as the man that commits adultery. And then you go, oh, oh no, the ninth commandment, you mustn't lie. So he's standing up there and he's breaking two commandments, possibly. <laughs> Eighth commandment, you mustn't steal. How many of you know if you take another man's wife, guess what that is? It's taking something that don't belong to you, belong to me, stealing. Seventh commandment, blatantly. I mean, if, if, they, never, if they were a bit dense spiritually and they never kind of connected the dots with 10, 9, and 8, the seventh commandment would definitely get them, right? Because the seventh commandment is... Thou shalt not, you must not commit adultery. Could it be that that is what Jesus was writing on the ground? It's all conjecture, it's all speculation, we're not sure. But see, now instead of them asking the questions, Jesus is now asking the questions. Instead of Jesus being silent, they have now been silenced. And this is what happens when you come into the presence of Jesus. Especially those who come to accuse him. Those who come to contradict him. Especially those who come to challenge Jesus. Are you this afternoon one of those types of people who would challenge Jesus? You know what I mean? Um, you know, reading the Bible to some degree, is being confronted with Jesus. The Bible, I'm not sure if you know, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then drop down to verse 14 in John 1, it says, and the Word became, what? Flesh, and was manifest. The Word tabernacled in a human body for all to see. And it was Jesus. And Jesus is obviously the word become flesh. 
Now you can talk about, oh, I wish we could go back to the days when we saw Jesus literally, but you know, you can actually open your Bible and meet with Jesus because he's the living word. You know, the Bible is a dangerous book. I've known for years that the word of God is alive, right? If you remember King James, Hebrews 4, the word of God is quick, right? It's an old word for alive and sharp and powerful. But I heard somebody say something just about two weeks ago that really helped me to understand further what it means when the Bible says that the Bible is alive. Someone said it's alive and it's beating. It's alive and it's breathing. You remember a film called Jumanji? The Bible's like Jumanji, fam. That thing up in the attic called Dusty, you know what I mean? They climb, ain't, ain't troubling nobody. Climb up in the attic and go fast with the box. <sighs> Blow the dust off and bring it down. Yeah, let's, let's play with this. Fam. Hey, you. open it up and two twos, the pieces start moving. And before you know it, that game, that seemingly simple and unassuming dead cardboard and a couple bits of plastic pieces begin to affect the whole environment. Two twos, you see rhinoceroses running through the room and big old mosquitoes. Come, you remember, you remember the film? The Bible's like that. It's alive. And if you open it, you do so. <laughs> Be careful. Not only be careful how you read the Bible, be careful how you listen to the Bible as it's communicated, as it's preached. Even now, as you sit here and as I stand here as a speaker, but also a listener, the Bible has the power to change and affect us because it's alive and it's breathing. And because Jesus is the word of God and his words are spiritual and life-altering, we must be careful how we listen as well as read because we're actually encountering the Lord Jesus. That's what happens when you encounter the Lord Jesus. Your life potentially is altered and these were exposed to the presence of Jesus. And they were exposed to the, the presence of Jesus and challenged by him, particularly in regard to their sinfulness. Notice, these men are no longer pointing a finger at this guilty woman. The Lord is now pointing his finger at these guilty men. Now, they aren't looking at this woman's sin that they wanted to parade, but they are now having to confront their own sin. We're talking about what happens when you get caught in the act of sin. And sometimes our perception of sin and our response to sin can be different. Sometimes our perception of sin and our response to sin can be different. The Pharisees who brought this woman, they had an opinion of sin. This sin must be exposed. Right? That's what they cried. Even to the point of dragging her into, into, into a public place, exposed the sin. 
but completely disregard the sinner. They had an opinion on sin. That is other people's sin, but not their own. This woman had an opinion of sin, and a twisted one at that. This this woman who is evidently involved in this affair seems to have done so willingly. She isn't a rape victim. This doesn't seem to be that type of incident. This woman had an opinion on sin and she evidently had consented to this horrendous act. See, and this needs to be highlighted, right? This woman is not a victim, but a willful transgressor. Let's not get it twisted. This is an extremely sinful woman. Make no bones about it. She isn't thinking about, or she wasn't thinking about the man's wife. She wasn't thinking about the man's children. She's selfish and only thinking about herself. She's an adulteress. Now, we don't say that loud enough sometimes. You know what I mean? It's just like the... Yeah. We don't say that loud enough sometimes. And to the point where our culture becomes desensitized. So it's nothing for stars to get divorced three or four times. It's, you know what I mean? And it's even got to the point where it happens in the church. You know what I mean? And it's nothing. It's just a minor. It's like... It's the way it is, isn't it? And we've become completely desensitized. But let's remember that adultery destroys marriages. Adultery destroys families. Adultery brings shame and it brings guilt. It brings guilt and shame to the two guilty individuals that are involved, but then also to everyone related, directly or indirectly. This is true for non-Christians and especially worse for professing Christians. Because if we commit this selfish act, if we commit this destructive act, we distort the beautiful picture that marriage is supposed to portray. You know, at the wedding of Brent and Temi yesterday, Pastor E, who was officiating the ceremony, he said <laughs> at one point, he says, you may now kiss the bride. Right? And, I mean, he was speaking to the bridegroom, right? <laughs> the bride then proceeded to get a hold of the groom. And she done the kissing. I mean, she went in. Tell me I'm lying. Can I get a witness? Amen. But, but here's the thing. It was the first kiss. Not the first kiss of the day. This is the first kiss of their lives since they've been caught and they never kissed. I think we need to get them to, t- maybe when they come back, get them up and interview them and get them to testify and talk a little bit about that. Because I think we were all, I mean, everybody was like sharp intake of breath, like jaws dropping at that point. And here's the thing. When, when, when we, when I saw her kiss him, I could tell she wanted him bad. (laughs) Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because this man had honored this woman. He he had honored her by not defiling her or defrauding her. But he genuinely loved her. You know, man will tell you, like, young ladies, be like, 
you know, you're my girl, you know, I love you. Don't even talk. What do you mean, do I love you? You know what I mean? And, and then they will, they will abuse you physically and mentally and emotionally. That's not a man that loves you. What we saw yesterday was genuine love to the point where he didn't even touch her. See, he wasn't caught in sin. And there's, a, and there's a lesson in that for you fellas. There's a lesson in that for me. If you want your woman to love you bad, love her with a pure love. And, and your wife will do for you things that you can only dream about. Can I get an amen, ladies? And notice that I said, your wife will do things for you. I ain't trying to encourage adultery as well as fornication, right, in the context. But at the wedding yesterday, we saw how a bridegroom is supposed to relate to his bride and vice versa. And it's the perfect picture of Jesus and his undying love for his bride, the church, and her submission to him. And whenever there's unfaithfulness in marriage, it shatters that picture. Now getting back to my point, this woman in our story, she had an opinion on sin. And I suspect how she felt before she got involved in this relationship was completely different to how she feels now. How she felt before she got caught versus how she feels now ashamed and maybe pulling at her clothes that possibly have been I mean who knows is she standing there with any clothes on they caught her in the act and we see how these guys get down they don't care about her they could have possibly dragged her out naked see she now feels completely different about what she's done versus before have you ever had that experience we play around with sin like a toy, only to find that it's a rattlesnake. See, and then you get bitten, and uh, it's not so funny at that point, is it? And here comes destruction and devastation. Here comes horrendous hurt and heartache. Here comes a lifetime of lament for a morsel a pinch of passing pleasure. Now that's what happens when sin is uncovered. And here come the consequences and the implications. But then there are those sins that never get exposed, right? Sins that have been kept secret, never been brought out into full view, at least in this life, that is. Some sins are exposed while others are hidden. First Timothy chapter five, we're gonna to get to this in a few months time. Verse 24 says, the sins of some, and I'm reading from the Amplified, the sins of some, some, some men and women, mankind, are conspicuous. That means they're openly evident to all eyes, right? Going before them to the judgment seat, 
and proclaiming their sentence in advance. Now this seems to indicate that there's opportunity at this point for forgiveness, I should say for repentance and forgiveness, right? If you've been rumbled, confess and forsake your sin, at least whilst, whilst there is still time. Because sentence has already been passed. And in view of your guilt, you will be sentenced. The impression I get is that on the day of judgment, God, unlike they teach in Islam, God is not going to weigh up your good against your bad. Because you've already been found guilty, you're about to be sentenced, and essentially you're just awaiting execution. That's why without, without the intervention of the Lord Jesus, we're finished. So repent at this point. Repent as your sin is exposed. And cry out for mercy and God will forgive. That's the whole point of Jesus' coming. We saw that in 1 Timothy 1. There's a saying that's sure and it's true and worthy of universal acceptation and it's this that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. That's why he came. And um, the encouragement for us is to confess our sins to God and forsake them. It's Proverbs 28, 13. And it says that you'll find mercy on that basis. And also, you know, James in chapter 5 he says that we must confess our faults to who? Initially, we're supposed to confess our sins to God. You know what I mean? That's how we receive his forgiveness. But sometimes we need to confess our sins to, to one another. That's what James says. Confess your faults one to another. Why? That you may be healed. And sometimes, you know what I mean, we're, we're, we're depriving ourselves of, of, of healing in our hearts and in our minds. You know what I mean? When we got sin and it goes unconfessed to a brother or to a sister. And I don't think I've ever seen a time where a brother or a sister has confessed sin either in view, in, 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 you know, where I've been able to see it or with me or me do it to someone. I don't think I've ever seen a time where a brother or sister says, what? What and what? Because you think that you've confessed your sin and you come to me and you're asking me for forgiveness that it's just going to be over just like that. I've never seen that response. I've seen someone say, this is hard, you know. I've seen someone say, you know, I need some time to think about it. But I've never seen anyone respond. And, it's, and, and aren't we all like that? It's just like in the parable that Jesus told of the father that sent out the two sons. The father says to one son, son, go and work in my field. And he went, what? I ain't going to go work in no field. You're mad. And he walks off, but then he changes his mind. He's like, cha man, I don't want to go and work in field, but he's my father in it, and he's been good to me, and he's feeding me, and I live in his house, and, and he goes and works in the field. Then Jesus says, the father says to the other son, son, go and work in my field. And he says, yes, sir, but he doesn't go. He walks away, and he doesn't do what he said he would do. Two types of sons. And um, I really love that parable. It's like a free verse parable. And 
Hopefully we're not the second son, we're not the second daughter, the second child who say, yes, Lord. We say, Lord, Lord, and we don't do the things that he says. And I'm saying, but sometimes we say, I'm not doing that. I'm not forgiving that person. But then we walk away and oh, the Holy Spirit starts to wrestle with our conscience. You get me? To, to, the word of God starts wrestling with your conscience. Go to bed and can't sleep, no peace. You know what I mean? And eventually you phone them up in it or send them an email or knock on their door. I say, you know what? I'm sorry, forgive me. Or I've been withholding forgiveness. I'm sorry, I forgive you. And when we do that, there's, there's healing. There's healing, there's restoration one to another. <clears throat> but see, if you reject the call to repent, the verse goes on to say, 1 Timothy 5, verse 24, it says, look, but the sins of others, these are the ones who want to hide their sin, they want to cover their sin, the sins of others appear later, following the offender to the bar of judgment and coming into view there. Seems to make sense to confess and deal with their issues here, not there. God, if we leave it to Dennis, it's too late. So we've got this Pharisee's attitude to sin. We've got this woman's attitude to sin. But what is our attitude to sin? Well, let's look further as we continue to contemplate our attitude to sin. Let's, let's look further at Jesus' attitude to sin. Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone at her. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't deny that this woman deserves to be stoned. Keeping emphatically to the Old Testament law, not contradicting Moses. It's just like, ah, oh, okay then, Jesus, heavy. But also saying, you know what? If you want to stone someone, that's your business. It's like, why are you dragging me into your issues that are contrary to the law of the land? Why are you dragging me into your mess? See, his answer is brilliant. And I would add, and only the Lord Jesus, I don't know anyone who can do this, who can say so much in so few words. He's also saying, you hypocrites. You were quick to point out that this woman had been caught in an act of adultery, in the act of sin. You're actually blind to the fact that you have actually been caught in the act of sin. Caught in the act of sin. What a twist. I mean, it's even better than the Batman film that I went to see last week. And it is, it's a really good film. The last one, I can't remember what it's called, but the current one. It's 2012, just in case you're watching this in 2015 or something, I don't know. It's a really good film, man. We had a, we had a joke about it the other day. Um, I, don't, I wonder if I'm going to be known as the preacher who is as a film critic, because I'm always, every time I'm preaching, I always make reference to these films, right? Um, what a twist. These guys who are actually exposing this woman, she's caught in the act of sin. Yo, you've actually been caught in the act of sin. It's brilliant. Verse eight, and once more, Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. My gosh, Jesus, effortless. <laughs> Jesus is heavy. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. That's because they had more sense, right? And probably more sin. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Beautiful scene. This woman was about to be murdered, and rightly so. But now the accusers have gone, and she's standing there with Jesus. They, they left convicted of their sinfulness, but it doesn't seem like they all actually repented. They were convicted, but being convicted don't mean that you repent, right? Judas was convicted to the point where he couldn't handle his guilt. That's why he took his life. Peter was convicted on the other hand and he wept bitterly and ended up on his face before the Savior. Forgive me. Wept bitterly because he denied Jesus three times. I'm saying, just because we feel guilt doesn't mean that we've repented. And may God help us beyond just having guilt and condemnation they left convicted of their sinfulness, but they didn't repent. Later on in this chapter, some of them come back for a return bout with Jesus. We see that in verse 48 and verse 59 of chapter 8. But the question is, how do we respond? That's how they responded. How do we respond when convicted of our sinfulness? Do we respond to repentance? Or do we, like them, go away only to return unchanged? I mean... And that can happen to us, can't it, easily. We can come church from week to week, leave this church car, ain't really feeling it, go to our next church for a few years and then leave that church and go to our next church. Or go to a church and be there for your whole life. And week on week, go out and come back unchanged. That's, that's really terrifying. That's really scary. Because the word is powerful. We just heard that earlier. Well... We don't want to leave unchanged. Look down at verse 10 and 11 as we finish. Let's look at what Jesus says we ought to do. Look at the middle of verse 9. It said that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Imagine if that was you. She's standing before him, the only one legitimately qualified to judge, right? What's he going to do? The others couldn't judge. They weren't in a place to judge. And they knew that. That's why they walked away. But he can. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Looking around at them. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Again, what sort of state was she in physically, emotionally, pulling herself together? One minute, she was, a minute ago, she was going to die. Her heart's pounding. Her thoughts racing. She said, Lord, no one. And Jesus, again, another unexpected statement. It's like, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And you could get the impression, of, boy, wait a minute. If anyone should say something about this, Lord, it should be you. How do you mean you're just going to let her off the hook? He says, I don't condemn you. You know, when Jesus came into the world in John 3, it says that he came not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. 
And when you, when you understand that, you understand what he means when he says, I don't condemn you. At least at this point. You, you are guilty of your sin, but I'm not going to leverage judgment against you at this point. And we know eventually, at the end of his life, he actually took that judgment, didn't he? That we all deserved when he went to the cross. He says, neither do I condemn you, he says, he says, but look, he doesn't overlook our sin. He says, go from now on, sin no more. The sin thing, lady, in your life is an issue. And I'm not going to overlook it because it's serious. Look at, the, look at the problems it's caused you. And you ain't even seen nothing yet. Wait till you stand in the official courts of justice before God. He says, he says I don't condemn you. You see grace, but you also see just a... Um, is it in Hebrews it talks about the goodness, but it also talks about the, the severity of God. And in that we see both, don't we? The goodness and the severity of God. Now, amazing things happen in the presence of Jesus. These men came into the presence of Jesus, were unchanged. This woman was dragged into the presence of Jesus because of her sin and left potentially, radically transformed, possibly. That goes to show that sometimes when we are exposed and our sin is exposed, it's on account of God's mercy. The fact that her sin was exposed was actually a blessing. And you know, if it, when we get exposed, we don't like it. I don't like it. I hate it. When I get exposed for my, my, my shortcomings and my sinfulness, I hate it. But if it didn't get exposed sometimes, I wouldn't deal with it. And I think you're probably the same as me. And because against our will and against our carnal judgment, a sin gets exposed, you now have to deal with it. There's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. That's actually mercy. Because we're now being forced to deal with our issue. There are many who will be attending church this morning by choice who will leave unchanged like the Pharisees. Hope, hopefully that won't be you and hopefully that won't be me. But we will respond to Jesus. We will respond to the word of God. We're not sure what happened to this woman. Right? That's why I said it's all possibilities. We don't, know what she, we don't know what she did. But that's not your business. It's not my business. Consider yourself. Examine yourself. On the other hand, you might like Wait a minute, what happened to the brother? What happened to the man in the story? Because really and truly, it, it takes two to tango, right? How come you bring out the woman, you don't bring... What happened to the man? Well, he did what most men do, right? He used and abused this woman and then ducked out. He left, he abandoned her, Possibly moved on to a new unsuspecting victim. He did what most men do. Where's the man in the story? Good question, but wrong question. Where are you in this story? As you stand there with Jesus, Jesus the gentle judge, right? Who came the first time, not to judge, but to save. But then when it comes the second time, it won't be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. 
today. Have you been caught in the act of sin? And mercifully, it's not been exposed, but it has been exposed because God has exposed it to your own heart, to my own heart. If so, let's repent, let's confess our sin and let's forsake it and do what Jesus says. Let's go and sin no more. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm not sure if Tim is happy to come and join me. Um, Let's pray as they make their way up. Father, thank you for um, the manifold expressions of your love towards us. Thank you, Lord, for this story. Thank you for your word. Thank you for multiple stories of examples of your grace where judgment is undeniably deserved, yet you hold back the hand of judgment. You hold back the club. Where we don't... where where we deserve much more than that. You're merciful, you're gracious, and we thank you that your word is replete with stories like this. Would you help us to read your word correctly? Because so often, Lord, it's so easy to see other things. Would you open our eyes to see that which continues to perpetually paint that picture of your mercy and your grace? Thank you that mercy rejoices over judgment and Father we need mercy and I think Lord until we really understand that we need mercy we can't show mercy that's why so that's why so often we're so angst we're so angry Lord that's why we're always so unforgiving we're so bitter it's partly because we have we, we don't know what it means to have experienced forgiveness experience grace because it's the person who has been forgiven much loves much so lord would you help us help us not to be like these pharisees always on their agenda but lord would you help us to take a step back and see things from your perspective and see things the way jesus sees things such love such mercy not overlooking sin highlighting it but in such a gracious way Lord would you help us to see this and would you help it to be a reality in our own lives that we would be like Jesus more about us visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on facebook and twitter at cc south london join us next time for more of god's truth to transform your reality